Before we look closer at our text this morning, let me firstly say that it is with an equal portion of joy and sadness that this will be my last time I'll preach at Claremont. For now, as my placement comes to an end here, poignantly next week on Easter Sunday. But it is a delight to be able to spend my last sermon looking at the very special events of Palm Sunday. As I've already said, it's one of the most famous days in the Christian calendar. And because of that, it has been infused with such great insight, but also some great misunderstandings. And I hope together today we can look at some of them. But before we begin, let's pray. Lord, as we come with great joy to the gates of Jerusalem, as we lay down our coats and wave our palm leaves, give us the heart to recognise you once again. Infuse us with the Holy Spirit to call out to you, Hosanna, in the highest and mean it. As we read and think about that first Palm Sunday, may you bless us and may your spirit fall afresh in us. Bless these words from my mouth. Bless those who hear and those who see. In your name we pray. Amen. It was Palm Sunday as Jesus gallantly rode into Jerusalem. Lights blinding, he sat upon his blazing white stallion that kicked up a cloud of dust as he pranced his way through the dusty central streets of the old town. The people he rode beside clamoured to the poles of their verandas, awestruck by the new man in town. They glanced down at his warrior-like physique, the glistening silver pistols swinging in their holsters, the blade of his fine sword dazzled in the sunlight. Jesus looked around but didn't have much time to stop. There were criminals on the loose and he had a job to do. And as he rides into the city, he sizes up the situation like every good superhero would. As he forms in his mind a plan to capture the ringleader. On the other side of town, the criminals have gathered. Their leader, Diablo, also known as Satan, was readying himself for battle. This Satan didn't like Jesus being on the prowl in his own streets. So when he heard him coming, he loaded up his pistol, readjusted his lasso and sent his sidekicks out to plan their ambush. Kicking wide the screeching saloon doors, he steps heavily into the dusty street, clicking his heels on the ground, spitting out the toothpick that balanced precariously on his lip. The crowd ran for cover for they knew to keep clear when Satan had that smouldering angry look in his eyes. But Jesus was anything but afraid. He got down from his stallion, gently ensured his pistols and sword were in place. His white chaps gleamed in the orangey sun. He clenched his fists, popped his knuckles, and made that John Wayne grimace that we're all familiar with. Go ahead, he said, make my day. And like lightning, a couple of shots were fired, a scuffle 
dust clouded the scene and Jesus rose triumphant over Satan and his minions who were hogtied and sent to jail. And as the town people gathered, the local leader came and slapped a gold sheriff's badge onto Jesus' chest in a vote of confidence for what he had done. But with a great leap, he mounted his horse and pulled tightly on its reins. The stallion stood on its hind legs, pawing the air with its front and belted off into the distance. Lifting his white hat in farewell, Jesus promised that he'd be back. The background music swelled into a crescendo and the credits began to roll as Jesus disappeared off into the sunset. Well, that's probably how it should have looked. If I was going to be writing a Sam Sunday story about this event, this is how I would have done it. It's probably how all of Hollywood would do it as well if they had the chance. But isn't it true that this Jesus figure that we have been speaking about and knowing about and loving never really does what we expect him to do? I often read through these accounts of his life and wonder why he doesn't do stuff differently. Why did he keep things secret sometimes? Why didn't he show himself in his fullness and power and majesty? Why did he choose to do certain things over other things? Why didn't he just defeat everybody and be the reigning Messiah that he was supposed to be? And actually, that's a really important feeling for us all to feel on Palm Sunday. Because getting to grips with that feeling is what most people at the time would probably have been thinking as well. You've probably noticed in your Bibles that this section is called, often called, sorry, the triumphal entry. And I think that's actually one of the misrepresentations of what is going on here. Jesus' entry into Jerusalem, of course, looked triumphant. But that would be dependent on who you were and how you were viewing it. A triumphal entry for the people of Jerusalem was something that would happen to set them free from the binding prison that the Romans gave them. A triumphal entry would have fulfilled all of the prophesied expectations of the coming Messiah with all his supposed military might and glory. A triumphal entry would have seen Jesus set up as king, ruler and judge of this earthly kingdom, restoring Israel to the glories of King David and the majesties of Solomon. But none of these things actually happened in the way they were expected to. This event might be called the triumphal entry. But the more we look at it, it was really anything but. And so with Sam, Pam Sunday, you have all these insights and all these expectations mingled with all these misunderstandings and misgivings that's going on. Insight because Jesus, as we know, really was a king. Misunderstanding because he wasn't the kind of king that the people expected. And as we turn to the text, the very first phrase that we come to says this, when he said this, he went ahead on up to Jerusalem. And the context of that is important because Jesus had just been correcting his followers on the true nature of his kingdom. 
He just told that parable about the noble who went to a foreign land to be king, leaving his disciples and servants with money only to return and reward them. And I can imagine the disciples having just heard that are filled up with this. Here we go. This is what he's been telling us. He's going to ride into Jerusalem, storm in and take what is rightfully his. But as Jesus arrives at his penultimate destination, the Mount of Olives, he begins his own preparations for going public in the big city. Luke is careful to mention to us the specific route that Jesus took, passing two towns, Luke in verse 29, Bethpage and Bethany. And I think they're actually quite important because they become a symbol of two different types of people. Bethphage in Hebrew means the house of unripe figs, and Bethany means the house of ready figs. These are the two kind of people Jesus would highlight during his week in Jerusalem. What kind of people is he going to find in that city? Unripe figs or ready ones? By this point, if we've followed the story, the symbolism that Luke uses for figs will carry on into Jerusalem. We know he's going to find a lot of fruitless people there. Not long after Palm Sunday, you might remember in Matthew's gospel, is where Jesus curses a fig tree and it immediately withers because he was unable to find good fruit on it. After he tosses up the tables in the temple, his disciples noticed that that fig tree that he has cursed had died and rotted away. So there's this whole idea about good and bad fruit in the city. And we know, looking back now, what Jesus is going to find there. Barrenness, dead to faith teachers and overzealous religious bigots. But in order to prepare for his entry into that city, he gets his disciples to go and find him a colt. Now, a colt is a young donkey. And Jesus is very prescribed about why he's asking for this, or what he's asking for, rather. Go to the village opposite. Find the colt tied up, and one on which it's never been sat because the Lord needs it. The fact that it had to be a colt that hadn't been ridden makes that animal really special and sacred. I've heard many a Palm Sunday sermon where the specifics of Christ's desire for this colt are misunderstood. But I want to show you this morning that it gives a clear and specific message about who Christ really is. One of my favourite theologians, R.C. Sproul, says this about it. He says that the donkey, the colt, is a humble notice board of Christ's holiness. If you jump back with me to 1 Samuel 6, we get a story here about the Israelites arranging the removal and the movement of the Ark of the Covenant out of the area of the Philistines because it's in danger. Now that Ark is the veritable symbol of God's presence on earth. The ark is where God's presence dwelled amongst his people. And it sat within the Holy of Holies, 
Right in Jesus' time, in fact, the time we're talking about, that ark, that very same ark, is in the temple, cut off by a thick curtain, only to be approached by the holy priest. And here we read in 1 Samuel 6, verse 7, that the ark had to be carried on an animal that had never been yoked or broken in or ridden on before. Do you see the link? The holy ark of God, that presence that was now in the temple was to be carried on an animal that hadn't been ridden. And here is Jesus making the very same statement, saying to the people that he is the very presence of God on earth, requiring the same unridden, unyoked animal to carry him into Jerusalem. And that tells us all something so important about Jesus. That Ark of the Covenant was the holiest and most important artifact in all of Jerusalem, in all of Judaism. And so what Luke is effectively telling us here is that this Ark of the Covenant, the one that the priests are fawning over in the temple right now, is the fulfillment of the law, the extent of the law, the glory of God in all its fullness. But Jesus is saying that all of that has now been encapsulated and finds itself entirely represented in a new ark, a new holy presence. This man, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Jesus is saying, I am now the ark of the covenant coming to Jerusalem. I am the dwelling place and the presence of God. The temple you have is no longer required because I have come. But why a donkey? As I tried to illustrate at the beginning, any kind of king or superhero or military general or proposed saviour of the world would surely be expected to ride in on a big white stallion, an animal with great majesty. I'm thinking about that scene in Aladdin where he arrives in Agrabah as Prince Ali with a wonderful big parade ready to propose to Princess Jasmine. He sits on top of an elephant in splendor and majesty. But no, the Prince of Peace, this Jesus chooses a humble donkey. And the contrast couldn't be greater, could it? This was Christ's humility over worldly pride. This was poverty over affluence. This was meekness and gentility over rage and malice. Just as the manger had been a lowly place for a prince to be born, so too would, be, would, this, would his stallion be a lowly beast of burden for the prince of peace and the saviour of the world. Nevertheless, his disciples are exhilarated and all people around are full of joy. And as Jesus is heading towards the city, people begin to do this beautiful tribute, don't they? Laying down their cloaks, paying homage to him. This is a sort of ancient custom in Jerusalem of rolling out the red carpet. And to get a bit of insight as to what that time would be like, Jerusalem would have been ram-packed from all over Israel. People would have filled into this city. There would be music and dancing and festival atmospheres. Think royal wedding, flag-waving, the mall full, people fully excited in the spirit of the day. There would be Galileans there who would have absolutely known Jesus 
for who he is, would have seen his miracles, would have heard about his healings. And we know that that word of who he was would have got back to the teachers of the law and the high priests in Jerusalem itself. And before you know it, the crowds are singing, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven, glory in the highest. Now, another insight and misunderstanding is that we often think all this celebration, all this singing is just about Jesus. But actually, that's only partly true. Because what's going on here isn't out of the ordinary for this time of year in Jerusalem. As pilgrims would go up to the city at a certain point on the road, they would begin by singing Psalm 113. And as they got nearer and nearer to the city, they would sing through Psalm 14, Psalm 15, Psalm 16, Psalm 17. And as they entered the gates of the walls of Jerusalem, they would burst into song reciting Psalm 118. But the crowds had got something wrong in this version of the psalm. They changed the words of it. They should normally have been singing, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Baruch haba Bashem Adonai. But before they've even known it, they've turned him into a king of their own making. Blessed is the king, they sing, who comes in the name of the Lord. And they did that, brothers and sisters, because they expected the superhero. They overlooked the symbol of the humble donkey. They overlooked the way he entered because they focused on their worldly need. They wanted to be saved from their worldly prison under the Roman occupation and gave no thought about what he was really going to do. And even as they sing, the atmosphere begins to change, doesn't it? Verse 39, the teachers of the law hear what's going on. They see Jesus being interpreted as this king. And the first thing they say, tell your disciples to shut up. Silence them. We don't want to hear this. We don't want you to be called a king. Shut them up. Oh, how much they failed to see. All of them. The disciples and the multitude should have seen this, surely. They should have known. I mean, it's everywhere in Scripture. It was plain before their very eyes. He had clearly taught it and he clearly explained it, but they just did not get it. And let me tell you, all of their history has pointed towards this single moment. But it goes without saying that it's not surprising at all that all of the people, of all of them, it was those who had most deeply studied the scriptures that wanted people to shut up about who Jesus was. Brothers and sisters, this passage, I think, goes to the heart of what we should think about Jesus on this very day. When Jesus came, most of the religious people were looking for a warrior messiah, a Messiah who would raise an army and crush and kill and slaughter the enemies of Israel. But that's not what happened. And though the people hailed him as king, they wanted a different sort of king than the king he had come to be. 
They wanted him to be the one that would come and destroy their enemies, but he was the one who came to tell them to love their enemies. He wanted to come and tell them that he forgave their enemies just as he had forgiven them. That he had welcomed both the Israelites and their enemies into one family of the redeemed. But they just did not see it. And as we read into verses 40 and 41, we hear that he wept over the city. And every time I think I ever come to this special day, it always sits in my mind whether or not Jesus still weeps over us as well. Though we know why Jesus came the first time over 2,000 years ago, many of us still expect this grand second coming. We all think he's going to come as the same warrior king the Jews expected. Parts of us want to see him coming to raise an army or maybe bring one with him so that he can crush and kill and slaughter all the secular enemies we have in the world. But I wonder sometimes whether we've fallen into the same trap as our spiritual forefathers. Could it be that just as they wrongly wanted a Messiah who would kill and slaughter others. So often down the history of the church, we have been hoping for that same Messiah would do the same thing. Maybe, maybe just maybe, when Jesus comes again, it will not be like the story I told at the beginning. It will not be to defeat our enemies and let their blood flow through the city streets. Maybe, just maybe, when Jesus comes, it will be to forgive all, to accept all, love all, and bring peace to all. Maybe when Jesus comes again, riding that white horse of victory, the victory that he declares is not over our physical foes, but over the spiritual enemies of sin and death and the devil. Maybe when Jesus comes again with a robe dipped in blood, it's not stained with the blood of our enemies, but it's stained with his own blood shed for us and for our enemies. Maybe when Jesus comes again with the shining sword at his side, it's not a sword for dealing death, but a sword of the spirit and the word of truth, which reveals to all of us who we really are and what God is really like. The crowds that day wanted a king who would kill their foes. They were wrong. And I think sometimes we mistakenly want a king who will kill our foes as well. And that's why Palm Sunday is a chance for us as a church to refocus are we looking for this great, majestic second coming of Jesus to dash out our enemies? Is that what it's about? Are we looking for Jesus to come again at all? If so, we need to make sure that when we do think about that, we take cues from his first coming. For if we don't, 
look at this story in all its fullness. We might not recognise him at his next coming. And brothers and sisters, he may weep over us just as he weeped over them. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Palm Sunday is a time where we lay down our branches and lay down our cloaks, where we surrender to your word. Help us, Father, to stay true to that intention, not to change our direction at a moment's notice when things get difficult. As we go on into Easter week, to Holy Week, help us continue to take those steps to the cross with Jesus and to see for ourselves what a saviour he is.